Hi, this is Kalia Colston. And I'm Dylan Bird. And this is the podcast of Triple R's The Grapevine, a weekly current affairs radio show putting local issues in a global context. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Monday. Hope you enjoy the podcast. And if you have any feedback or would like to connect, hit us up via the Triple R website. We're going to be talking about Melbourne and uh, that we're set to become Australia's largest city. And you've probably seen those numbers. um, But aside from the practical reality of this, including all those infrastructure upgrades that we're seeing all around us, uh, what would being the country's most populated city mean for Melbourne's influence on culture and on events like national elections? uh, Author and journalist George Megalogenis has been writing on this and associated issues for the age and he's in studio with us and it's great to have you thanks for coming morning team and it's it's going back a couple of weeks really that you've been writing quite an extensive essay on um, Melbourne and demography and I suppose some people don't necessarily think a big Melbourne is is good news but you see a whole lot of interesting results from it yeah in fact I almost have to put to one side the sustainability question because that question is a rolling question that's that arises depending on who's number one and Sydney of course has been through this period of being quite confident quite cocky about its position in sort of the Australian it's more business and politics and culture because it's not really a very influential city in terms of its culture I'd argue Melbourne probably has been uh, as the second city and traditionally in, in most rich societies the second city is the one that that, that uh, leads the culture it's the first city that leads the commerce and the politics and uh, and it's you know it's the power center uh, so the question of the question of sustainability I think we should get to it but if we could just put it to one side and just have a look at what's happened over the last 10 years last 10 to 12 years and this is probably the most important time period uh, to look at what Melbourne has been doing compared to everybody else. So 2008, the big shock is the global financial crisis. And to all intents and purposes, the mining boom ends as that free ride that we had. Uh, you know, Basically, you turned up to work and you got a 10% pay rise, which had nothing to do with you, but it was because of coal and iron ore and um, you know, China, voracious appetite for uh, minerals. Now, up until that point, up until 2008, and I was at the Australian at the time based in Melbourne, uh, but my boss was a Queenslander based in Sydney, and he kept reminding me that all the action was going north and west. So people were moving north and west, of course, especially especially to WA because Queensland was losing people to WA, and there was no thought at that point that Melbourne was doing anything special. So up until 2008, the argument would tended to be whether Je- Jeff Kennett had overcooked the... Um, the sort of the breakup and the um, reconstitution of Melbourne, especially in Victoria, as an open economy. And then all of a sudden, yeah. between two thousand and eight and now, a million people. Yeah, and that's uh, more look, in Melbourne. This, which, no, this, yeah. this number, and I double and triple check it just to make sure that it, that I'm on stable ground here. In the next ten years, we added a million people to our population, one million. So we went from four to five million. So we're responsible for a quarter of all the nation's population growth in that 10-year period. No other city in Australia has grown over a 10-year period by a million people. Brisbane went close, but we've grown by a million. We're a large city growing faster than everywhere else anyway off a larger base. So this is, this is what happens in, sort of, um, in the music business. You get these sort of superstar markets where the top artist is a multiple of every other mar- artist below them in terms of concert revenue, in terms of streams, and in the old days in terms of record sales. So Melbourne has done something different to everybody else in the 10 years since the end of the mining boom. And the consequences of that have only just been understood, I think, politically. 
And the political question is an interesting question because up until now, I think you'd argue that the country is run out of Sydney on behalf of Queenslanders because the, the swing state and especially regional Queensland has decided pretty much every election since the mid to late 80s. Uh, no government in Australia has been able to win a majority without Queensland. It's, it's really, really... Since the 80s. It's quite stark when you look, when you, when you look at the electoral map. There hasn't been an election where Labor or Liberal have been able to win a majority without a majority of seats in Queensland. And Kevin 07 showed us that Labor can do it, but can do just it, but, that one but, time. And, but Julia Gillard showed in 2010 mm. with a minority government, without Queensland, she couldn't form majority. Now, she won a majority of seats in four of the six states and in both territories. And she won a majority of seats, and this is an un, the unusual part about it, she won a majority of seats in Melbourne and in Sydney. So in the past, if you'd won a majority in Melbourne and Sydney, you know, if 40% of the population lives in those two cities, you'd assume that you'd be able to run the country. If you could bridge that foundational rivalry, uh, you get to run the country. Menzies did, Hawke did, Fraser did, uh, but not Gillard. Not anyone since. Not Shorten, obviously, because the last two elections have been sort of, you know, Melbourne, Sydney, Labor Territory, but... There's an equal and opposite force in regional Queensland where Labor could barely win a seat. I think they've only got the one seat outside of Brisbane, and that's um, that's in and around Ipswich. It's a, it's a fascinating. It's a fascinating point, and and one that begs the question: given Melbourne is growing at such a rapid rate and has kind of really transformed over the past yeah. ten years, what does that mean politically speaking for the influence that Melbourne can have? Yeah, so this is. We should take it in steps. Uh, so that last ten years has has, has gifted. And this is unusual for a large city. It's gifted Melbourne an extra seat in the um, in the federal parliament. At the last redistribution, uh, Melbourne was a plus one, but that extra seat came off um, the South Australian pile. So Port Adelaide now doesn't exist as a seat. So Adelaide lost Adelaide lost a seat. So in, in a sense, what the Electoral Commission did, and it takes years for these things to reach critical mass, um, the Electoral Commission decided. There are way more people in Melbourne proportionally than there were 10 years ago and there are fewer people in Adelaide proportionally than there were 10 years ago. Okay, Melbourne gets the extra seat. Now, we've sort of forgotten this because the shock of that uh, election result, and it shocked all sides of politics because Scott Morrison wasn't preparing a victory speech, he was preparing a concession speech. And Bill Shorten was out at Essendon Fields uh, preparing to be coronated. Uh, I was doing an event that night for readings in Carlton it was an election night party. Uh, we were hoping to get Don Watson as my co-host, but he was overseas. I was going to call it Don's party, <laughs> coincidentally. <laughs> and we were going to get Bill to come in at about 10 o'clock that night. That was the plan. <laughs> so he'd march in the All Nations uh, Church in Carlton and we'd introduce the Prime Minister to our, um, to our audience. But at that last election, and again, this is the thing everybody's forgotten, Forget May 8 and go back to May 17. Uh, Scott Morrison was terrified about what was happening in, in Victoria and especially in Melbourne. So he was terrified that there was this mad swing against the Conservatives, uh, which had already been validated in that big election result uh, the previous year for Dan Andrews, uh, and that that thing would pretty much cancel anything else that was going on in the rest of the country. Now, it was just that possibility that tells you that it's on. It didn't happen last time. But if this population boom runs for another two or three years, and it only needs to run for another two or three years for an extra couple of seats to be picked up by the middle of this decade, and when, when Melbourne moves to a situation where it has pretty much as many seats uh, in play uh, from a socially progressive perspective, it cancels whatever 
conservative action is going on in Queensland. Perversely, what it does is it, it puts this extraordinary weight on Sydney, which is the city, city in decline, to decide the federal election. And at the moment, it's sort of betwixt and between. There's a Labor won just a couple more seats than the Libs at the last federal election. Obviously, it wasn't enough for Labor to win a federal election. But if Melbourne, if Melbourne's getting bigger in each of those seats, it's going to be a Labor seat, and Queensland remains a conservative state. You get you get centre of gravity coming uh, back to the south, and so I, you know, I, I wonder, I wonder if the country can handle that, because we've we've sort of grown up. All of us as Melbournians have grown up, a been used to uh, viewing ourselves as a second city, b been mocked because we're too socially progressive. You know, we're we're apparently off off the charts in terms of where most true Australian values are. And, of course, up until recently, before the population boom uh, was well underway, was apparent, because it it's been underway for a bit longer than that, um, we were a rust belt. Apparently we had no role to play in the 21st century. Uh, I'll, just, uh, I'll just jump I'll just jump to another thought. So I spent 11 years in Canberra between 88 and 99. So guess what mantra was being drilled into me the whole time by the Hawke government, the Keating government and the Howard government? Australia had room for only one global city and it happened to be the city that they all well, settled there. It happened to be the city they all came from or they all loved, which is Sydney. Unfortunately, yeah. unfortunately, it became full. Yeah, Sydney. Well, well it was all, I think it was already full by 2000. <laughs> <laughs> and we can't... And this is, um, this, is the, this is the other part of the political equation. Um, tell me any time soon, where's the, where's the limit to growth in Melbourne? Where does it stop? Well, it feels inevitable, doesn't it? And I know, that, I mean, I wasn't even necessarily alluding to environmental sustainability earlier, but this it feels inevitable, even though in 2008 we weren't expecting this boom yeah. in population and we certainly weren't expecting that our infrastructure wouldn't keep up and all those sorts of things, or maybe some people planned for it. But, I mean, what is it about Melbourne that is attracting people? And yeah. often it's yeah, internal migration yeah, it's an interesting point because you liken what's happened in Melbourne over the past decade or so to the gold rush in, in the 1850s, which had a huge impact on, on not just Melbourne, but Australia more broadly as well. But there doesn't seem to be something as immediately obvious as the gold rush that's yeah. resulted in people flocking here in, in such yeah. huge numbers. So the, so the data, and I'm a data nerd, unfortunately, uh, the data does tell you this is, this is the biggest uh, internal shift in the Australian population since the 1850s. All the other ones have been drifts. So there's been, you know, last 20 or 30 years we're living, we're living in a drift north. You remember people kept talking about the sea change uh, and there was briefly a drift west which is now, which is now uh, coming back. But in the 1850s, what happened in the 1850s, going in, you know, the, the sort of the year of the gold rush, so you start that year in 1851, uh, the colony of Victoria just separated from New South Wales. Uh, Victoria, South Australia and, and then Van Diemen's Land were roughly the same size. They all had fewer than 100,000 people each. And then this switch gets flicked uh, with the gold rush. And Melbourne, which is, you know, an unsewered town, within about two or three years is the world's richest city. It shoots past Sydney, uh, shoots so quickly past Sydney, the Victorians don't even view Sydney as a... Um, or, and New South Wales as a, uh, as a viable competitor or as a peer. And in fact, Sydney side has then spent the, rest, the next 50 years, you know, sort of tugging for attention, which is obviously what we've been living through as Melbourneans <laughs> for the last 50 years. Now, that, uh, now that was, you, could, you could see why that would happen. And there were waves, obviously, of, uh, of middle-class migrants, you know, gold prospectors and the like, who paid their own fare to come out to Victoria in those days. 
and a lot of them stayed. They ended up staying in Melbourne. And it's one of those weird natural advantages that Melbourne had, say, if you compare the California gold rush in the 1850s, uh, we had a, you know, a port city very, very close to the gold fields. So that town became a city very quickly and became rich very quickly and it was able to hold its wealth and able to continue to attract people. Your question is what's driving today? There's clearly no gold rush on, but a mining boom has ended. So a mining boom has ended, uh, but we're running this other thing, which is not necessarily equivalent to the, to, the, to the middle class prospecting waves of the 1850s and even later, um, but the skilled migration wave that's coming from China and India, and especially India in the last 10 years, uh, this city, and this city has always branded itself as the most welcoming place. So remember earlier we were talking about, you know, sort of the, the, the sort of brain snap for the rest of the country when they realised that the most pro- socially progressive city in the country has enough people to be able to decide an election possibly. Um, well, the reason why we're in that position is all along we've been telling people that we want them to come here. Now, it may be that too many people have come, so that's the sustainability question. Who knows? Who knows? But other things being equal, you get a skilled migration wave coming, you get a country that's sort of adjusting to the end of a mining boom, where's the place they're going to end up? Where are the jobs? And the jobs are here. Now, Sydney, Sydney mind you, is actually collecting as probably as many migrants each year from overseas as Victoria does. But 20,000 people leave Sydney each year in net terms. So more people leaving than are, than, are, than are sort of moving there through interstate migration. And that's because of the property market. The place, is, the place is too expensive to live in. And in fact, a little data point, a lot of overseas migrants tend to leave Sydney at the same rate as locals do once they've sort of been there for a few years. So that's the city that migrants are most likely to leave after about five years. No wonder no. it's so hard to predict. There's so much um, moving around. George, yeah. George um, Megalogenes is with us and we're talking about Melbourne um, being sort of set to become Australia's largest city. It's only sort of 200,000 people smaller than Sydney is right now and it looks like uh, that's going to change within the next decade. Yeah, and uh, I mean, just as it's, it's difficult, I guess, to forecast these things and you write in your article that um, that uh, these trends can very much change because, you know, expected this um, great movement of people west, for example, during the mining boom, that it might kind of stay that way. But with this influx of, influx of people, what are the broader implications, do you think, for our politics? Because we see at the moment within the coalition, for example, a real friction between those in regional Queensland in, in regional seats and those in kind of the inner city. On the Labor side as well, there's different things that have been yeah. said to Melbournians compared to what they've been saying around the Galilee Basin, for example. So what does it mean for the way politics is conducted yeah. and who our politicians are speaking to as Melbourne continues to grow? Yeah, so this is, this is, this, this is sort of front of mind for both parties at the moment. And there is a conversation within the Labor uh, ranks at the moment, you know, so they sort of try to get their head around losing the unlosable election last year. Do we let the regions go and bet the house on, on the cities? Now, one of the reasons why they might think that is that the coalition have actually, you know, to a large extent let the cities go and bet the house on the regions. But if your population is growing much faster from the cities and the regions, in the end you could see why you would um, not necessarily bet the house on the cities, but why you would, you would expect in the next election cycle or two for an election to be decided in the cities. Now, mind you, uh, when Whitlam won in 72, that was basically a Melbourne and Sydney suburbs election. Mm. Was the, and, and that was after 20 years of the post-war migration program, basically 
blowing out the suburbs of Melbourne and Sydney and creating a Labor constituency where previously there wasn't one. Now, we're sort of getting the reverse here because a lot of the, a lot of the sort of population action is in the inner city. But in the inner city, of course, Labor's in competition with the Greens. Mm. So it's not necessarily the same two-party transaction that it was the previous time we've experienced a uh, big realignment like this. And that was 50s and 60s, into, rolling into the 70s. Now, what happens? So let's 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 talk about the let's talk about the let's talk about sort of demography decides an election for Labor, and it's a Melbourne anchored election. And we all write these, you know, Australia has changed pieces, these really solemn pieces or these celebratory pieces, depending on your perspective. What happens then? How do you run that country? So I don't think it's I don't think it's any easier to run a country. Uh, with a cosmopolitan majority, then 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 we are running the country now. I don't think the country's been well run now, and one of the reasons mm. it's not well run now is that we, we can't negotiate uh, on behalf of the future with these two constituencies. And, yeah, can and we? I think you know, and it points to if that's how politics is thought about, we we are we so divided? Yeah, are I the think, interests yeah. so different that we we can't have the same conversation and we don't share the same values enough? That we can sort of have a coherent vision. Yeah, I think I, I, I mean, look, my, my fear, and I, I put it in those terms. My fear is, uh, what I'm observing, leads to an obvious conclusion, which is a progressive southeast majority um, sometime soon, and then that majority is very difficult to budge because of dem- demographic reasons, mm. and that the people who are gifted that, uh, gifted the opportunity to govern on behalf of that constituency, you know, in the name of the entire country, are as thick as the group that are now running the country. And, thick, and thick in what sense? As in thick as thieves or thick as in not very smart? <laughs> That's probably both. Then. Well done. Well done. And, the prob- and the problem being um, they, come, they, they come from a time, a place that doesn't, hasn't experienced that other Australia anyway. And this, is, this has been an issue, I think, uh, a lot of developed countries are uh, having versions of this conversation. It's just the way our demography is working. It seems to be leaning towards an urban, ultimately an urban or a cosmopolitan majority. Not the thing that's going on in the US. You look at their electoral math at the moment and you almost can't see Trump losing the mm. next presidential election, even if the popular vote blew out as a plus five million for the Democrat, because um, it was three million the last time, even if it blew out to plus five million... Um, he gets to win. He gets to win the the sort of um, stagnant or the or the falling states or the states. I mean, at least we have the the yeah. electoral commission to draw the boundaries here. I mean, yeah. That's... Plus, compulsory voting helps. Mm. Um, but it used to be it used to be the case when the two party monopoly was really strong that we were competing over the that ten percent of voters in the middle, you know, who identified as swingers, whoever they were. They weren't they weren't real people. They were just. It just so happened that the two parties could turn up to an election with 40% each guaranteed of the country. So that narrowed the choice down to the 10 of the middle 20, so the other 10 probably didn't care. At the moment, um, the parties would be lucky to be able to point to a base of about 30% each, which means that you've got this big floating centre of about 40% of the population. And But it depends on where they are. Mm. And so I... As, as those numbers were coming in uh, last May, uh, it struck me that Labor's, Labor's, Labor's seats were getting safer and the Conservative seats were getting safer. How do you talk to that country? Honestly, like, how do you talk to that country? You can't march in and tell the loser in an election that their opinions don't matter. 
Because at the moment you see where Morrison's problem is. He's telling Melbourne... Well, you've got to say that you're, you're, you're governing for all Australians. That's yeah. what you've got to say. Well, but whether that's it. the truth or not is well, another matter. But, added, but, but there seems to be a bit of a chip on the shoulder at the moment with this government uh, towards the south. And as I said, what I worry about is is a, is a so-called progressive... Socially progressive people assume that they're just innately nicer and they consider all parties and stuff. But well, that's what I was going to ask because you can sort of assume that the more socially progressive um, electoral map will stay kind of as it is but grow as Melbourne yep. acquires more seats and that kind of thing. But, but, but will it? Because, I mean, the Liberal Party has, you know, pretty limited standing in Victoria at the moment and you can't really see them making inroads federally at the next election. But could that change as Melbourne continues to acquire more and more people? Yeah, so you so you so your proper rational political analysis would say that the libs would have to come back to the centre. And liberal mates of mine tell me that if the libs could stop trying to scare the country, they'd win every election. Because they've got they've got theoretically a much more viable national constituency than Labor does. So you think about your income ladder with your poorer seats at the bottom being in the regions a national party and your seats in the middle your sort of tertiary educated sort of younger constituency well that's labor but then sprinkled towards the top you've got safe liberal seats and you know where they are there's only seven at the moment in melbourne and they're all in the eastern suburbs and mm. not this side of the era for triple r listeners if you're coordinating where we are at the <laughs> moment um but you got a lot of small business people and increasingly Chinese and Indian uh, uh, migrants as they move from new arrivals to citizens and on the electoral roll, there's no reason why they wouldn't vote Conservative. If a Conservative party thought to appeal to their small business and family values and in a funny way as a, as a sort of patriot, I'd prefer a Liberal Party in that space, competing in that space, than the situation we're at the moment where they've almost, they've almost boxed themselves into that you're all stupid, uh, you know, because workers in the regions are going to decide every election. So who cares about scientists? Yada, yada, yada. Um, you know, don't... Is that, what's that called in um, sort of American politics, the, the sort of a patriarchal father type yeah. um, approach? We're out of time. Oh, I'm sorry but we that. could we could I am, talk I am we could a bit. T- we could keep talking um, maybe we'll have to have you back I don't know we'll just see when Melbourne's population ticks up and 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 hits even maybe with Sydney we can get it's, you it's back an, and keep talking could be the next couple of years I mean at the moment the, the trend the projection is for about 2026 for the thing to happen but it's already apparent that people feel the shift is underway mm. George Michelogenis, you can read more of his stuff uh, online um, and he's written an essay having a look at Melbourne becoming Australia's largest city and the implications um, for politics and many other things as well. It's been great to have you in. Thank you very Thanks much. For coming Thanks, George. Triple R. And Australia's superannuation guarantee, which is that 9.5% that most workers receive, is set to rise over time to 12%. But will this actually go ahead? Right now, there's a review happening into retirement incomes. And so the Grattan Institute's recent assessment of superannuation is timely. Uh, Matt Cowgill is Senior Associate at Grattan, and their report is called No Free Lunch, Higher Super Means Lower Wages. And... Matt, based on your assessment, um, 
you point out that the superannuation um, guarantee should not rise to 12%. Where do you think the magic number should sit? Uh, so we think that the, the magic number, as you put it, is somewhere around its current level. So as you say, it's 9.5% of wages now. Um, we think that that is enough to mean that most Australians can expect to receive an, an adequate retirement income when they retire. If it goes up much from here, certainly if it goes to 12%, uh, we think that um, a lot of Australians will end up having higher living standards in retirement than they actually have during their working lives because there is this trade-off between between super and wages. And so there's been um, a range of, uh, I guess, organisations and, and some would say vested interests who have got differing views on whether the superannuation rate should be increased. How did you go about conducting your research and ascertaining the extent to which a higher super guarantee might impact on, on wage growth? Yeah, you're right that there's certainly a lot of voices out there in the debate. Um, this question of the trade-off between super and wages is a really important one because if there is no trade-off, then then higher super is kind of a, a free lunch from the perspective of workers. What we did was we managed to get access to this um, you know, really fascinating data set. Researchers like us love to get our hands on, on really detailed data. This data set contains information about every single collective agreement, the enterprise agreement, ever lodged in the federal industrial relations system back to 1991. Using that, we were able to do this statistical analysis of 80,000 agreements to figure out um, whether agreements that are struck at a time when the compulsory super is going up have lower wages growth than um, agreements that are struck at a time when, when compulsory super isn't going up. We find that, that that's the case. Uh, and of course, we take into account all the, a range of other factors that affect um, the pace of wages growth as well. So when we do control for all those other things, we find that over the course of uh, an enterprise agreement, a collective agreement, which is usually about two or three years, around 80% of the cost of higher compulsory super is passed on to workers in the form of lower wages. And so I was. I looked at the your your findings and realized that my instincts told me the opposite. You know, surely higher superannuation is better for most people. And I had a look around and I had a look at ACOS, um, which sort of I suppose looks um, advocates on the interests of low and middle income earners. And they cite the Grattan research and and have pointed out that if the super guarantee rises above 10%, they want to see careful assessment of how it impacts on on lower and middle income savings for retirement. And I suppose what is the challenge specifically for those workers? Because I suppose, you know, people on higher incomes have historically looked after their own retirement anyway. There's the compulsory super, which has been there for almost 30 years, mm. uh, my understanding is was targeted to those that weren't saving enough for their retirement. So what is it for that's specific to those workers that we need to be looking out for? Uh, I mean, the issue is that if you're a, a low-income worker, you know, you're struggling to, to make ends meet during your working life. And so anything that weighs on your wages growth, that reduces your wages growth, is, is you know, really a bit of a problem. Um, and for them... In, for, for low-income people, really what determines their uh, standard of living in retirement is the pension. So if we have concerns about poverty among people who are retired um, and, and making sure that you know we really set a floor below which people shouldn't fall in retirement, that's the job of the pension. So if, people, if people's um, living standards are really too low and, and are in poverty, um, I think the, the 
policy solution there is the pension. And in your report, um, you, you suggest that at the moment superannuation is really doing its job or doing a better job than even we, we could have imagined when, it's, when it was introduced. Can we forecast kind of accurately 10, 20, 30 years in the future, given there's you know, challenges around home ownership and that sort of thing, that that might very much impact on the amount of um, funds people have when they retire? You're, you're right that it's a challenge and that any kind of answer to the question of how high should super be necessarily relies on these sort of projections of the future of, of looking out across people's lives and figuring out, you know, with different um, super contribution rates, what will be their, their living standards. Um, we, as anyone has to, we have to make a range of assumptions that go into that. And, and this is where some of the debate, you know, gets a bit technical about what are the right assumptions to make when projecting people's retirement incomes. Um, but we think that the ones, obviously, we think that the, the assumptions we've made are, are broadly right and, and that we certainly think super is a good thing, but it's possible to have too much of a good thing. And we think that if it goes to, to 12, that would be too much of a good thing. On the specific question of, um, you know, declining home ownership, we do certainly think that that's a big issue. And that's why we've recommended uh, an increase in Commonwealth rent assistance, mm. because the, the housing affordability issue is particularly a problem for retired people who are renting. This is where um, poverty in retirement is a real issue. And so increasing Commonwealth rent assistance can really target that population. Um, we're speaking with Matt Cowgill, he's Senior Associate over at the Grattan Institute and speaking about a, a report he was co-author of called No Free Lunch, Higher Super Means, Lower Wages. And I mean, you've got some really interesting um, numbers coming out of your assessment, Matt, and one of them is that people in general live off about 70% of their um, current income or the income that they had before they retired in retirement, so about um, 70%. For those not making ends meet now and who don't own their own home, that might seem confronting that they're going to be, you know, living off 70% of their income in retirement. Um, do we have a problem if the pension doesn't go up and if we don't get these other measures to support people on lower incomes or, or will people be okay, you know? So, so I should say that that 70% figure, that's actually kind of a, a target that um, a lot of policymakers around the world have for retirement incomes, a retirement income system. So the idea is that in order to have the same standard of living in retirement as you had when you were working, you only need about 70% of the income that you had while you were working. The reason being working has costs with it. You have to um, you know, pay for transport Commute, to your job. Yeah. Maybe you have um, clothing that you have to buy for your job, all, all that sort of stuff. Um, and so that that's a kind of a target. And what we find is that uh, increasing the super guarantee to 12% would leave a lot of people well above that at that 70% threshold, uh, that their retirement incomes would be, say, 90% of their income um, when they were working. And that would mean that their standard of living um, would be higher in, in retirement than when, we're, when they're working. So we think that's a bit of a, a perverse uh, outcome. We should also say, if you accept this idea that, you know, that the core finding of our paper, that there's a trade-off between super and wages, this affects the lowest income retirees who are relying on the pension because the pension is 
tied to wages growth. So if wages grow more slowly over time, the pension grows more slowly over time as well. Um, so this is this is something that, that really does affect the, the lowest income retirees too. And we've heard over the past five or so years about the slowing in wage growth. So right. we certainly don't want to see any more of that. But mm. some might argue, and I think I might be paraphrasing, but I think per capita has kind of held this line, broadly speaking, that um, given wage growth is um, sort of not happening as it, as it sh- should be anyway, that mm-hmm. therefore we should mandate a rise in super so it at least ensures that people who particularly are on low wages will have more in retirement. What do you make of that sort of argument? Yeah, so you're right that, that per capita and others have been advancing that view. I, I think it's a little bit uh, mistaken basically because the super doesn't mandate that you get paid more in total. What it says is that a certain proportion of the total amount your boss is paying out has to go into your super account and and the rest goes in as regular wages. If super goes up, that doesn't mean that the pie has to get bigger, that the amount that your boss is paying in total has to grow. It just means that how it's divvied up between your super fund and and your bank account uh, changes over time. So I don't really see a higher compulsory super as a way to secure higher wages growth for people. Wages wages growth is very low and this is a big problem, but wages are still growing at somewhere between 2.2 and 3%, depending on which measure you look at. And that means there is still scope for wages growth to fall in, in response to something like an increase in compulsory super. So if wages weren't growing at all, if wages growth was zero, then there wouldn't really be um, much ability for, for bosses to pass on uh, something like the cost of higher super, at least in the short run, because it's, it's pretty rare for people's wages to actually get cut. But if if, wa- if your wages are growing at two and a half percent, and your compulsory super goes up half a percent, maybe they'll grow by two percent. And still, there's still there's still that wiggle room. That's mm. right. Yeah. And so, I mean, your I don't your study doesn't address this directly, but um, you know, the numbers I, I think show that women retire with about what half the super as men. Yeah. And so I wonder if, I mean, you were talking earlier about about the pension and other kind of tweaks that can be made to deal with specific circumstances. Women are kind of half the population. Yep. Uh, is there bespoke measures that need to be made for women with superannuation because it hasn't necessarily served um, their interests as much yeah, over the years as men? You're right. There, there is a big gender gap gender gap in retirement incomes. I think it's important to note that if compulsory super goes up, if it's 12% instead of 9.5%, that gender gap will actually get bigger because your super contributions are a percentage of your wage. Um, The big drivers of that gender gap in retirement are the fact that there is a gender pay gap when people are working, so women are getting paid less than men on average, and also that uh, women are more likely to take career breaks, particularly to care for children. Neither of those things, unfortunately, looks set to change in the short term. Uh, And so if people are getting 12% or some higher number of their wage set aside for uh, for super, then then actually the gap in retirement incomes is going to grow, not not shrink. So we don't think that higher compulsory super is a solution to this this gender gap in retirement. There are things that people have proposed, like um, paying compulsory super on um, a paid parental leave, which could at least have some small 
um, effect on that gender gap in retirement. Um, and it's certainly an area that we want to do some more work in because it's a significant issue. It's, it's, it's interesting because the, the Victorian government recently has said that they would like to raise the compulsory super contributions to 15%, which is mm. obviously something you wouldn't advocate based on all the, all the research you've done. But part of the added measures that, um, that apparently the, the Victorian Labor government would like to introduce is for funds to stop charging fees when people are off work. So mm-hmm. um, women, of course, who overwhelmingly care for children at home um, and also that, that women should be paid at a higher rate than men. So do you think those measures are actually kind of very difficult to introduce and, and might not become a reality very easily? or I mean, the, the fees one is certainly worthy of investigation. And we think more generally fees in superannuation, you know, have some scope to come down. Um, they are somewhat high. They certainly differ by funds. So some funds are better than others, obviously, but fees on average are quite high. But um, yeah, these are certainly worth looking into. And uh, I suppose just in closing, Matt, there is a, a review happening into retirement incomes. Yes. I'm not sure when we're likely to hear a result from that, but we've seen, you know, former Minister Greg Combey from the Labor government, who was, you know, part of the government that kind of set this mm-hmm. this rate in the first place, not wanting to see that review recommend against changing the rate yeah. but uh, and you know people can go and investigate you know all the, the reasons that he provides for that but what are we likely to see because the coalition government has already put off increasing yeah. the rate or stepping up towards 12 percent um for a couple of years already that's right they have delayed it although it's currently legislated that it will start going up from the middle of next year so unless the law is changed that that will happen this retirement incomes review that's happening at the moment won't recommend anything the government has explicitly said that this review should not come up with policy recommendations. Uh, so instead what they're supposed to do is come up with a series of facts and um, we hope uh, at least partially resolve this question about like um, what are the right assumptions to make when you're projecting people's lifetime um, incomes, when you're projecting their retirement incomes based on different super levels. So hopefully end some of this uh, kind of arcane but important um, disputes um, about the modelling. Um, we expect that review to be concluded by the middle of the year, so hopefully we'll have some more facts on the table then. Good on you. And they've got a whole lot of mathematics and formulas from your report they can draw on for the review as well. I was really having a close look at it, but I I must say that I didn't get the whole thing. It's it's at the technical end of what Grattan publishes. Yeah, it's a bit of a wonky one. (laughs) Um, Matt Cowgill is Senior Associate over there at the Grattan Institute. Um, Food for thought, but um, you can go and check out more details. It's called No Free Lunch, Higher Super Means Lower Wages. It's on their website. You're listening to a Triple R podcast. Discover more podcasts from Triple R exploring science, technology, food, books, social issues, politics, and more. To listen, hit up the Triple R website or your favourite podcast platform. Over the weekend, the besieged leader of the National Party, Michael McCormack, reinforced his support of coal's role in the economy and I suppose his position is unsurprising however it does highlight that amid the drought and the fire emergency the politics of climate and energy have not necessarily changed very much at all and uh, Giles Parkinson is editor of Renew Economy and it's good to have you on Triple R again Giles. Well thanks for having me. And uh, I suppose I mentioned Michael McCormack's support of of coal, um, but it's not just the nationals that have um, a sort of a challenge around their messaging around coal mining and, and power stations. It's the Liberal Party and it seems parts of the Labor Party as well. Have things shifted at all, do you think, after the horror of this summer? 
it's um, it's um, it's kind of shifted, but they've kind of like entrenched their positions in some cases. Um, certainly on the right, we made entrenched their position behind coal. Um, on the left, well, Labor just seems to be floundering around, not too sure what to say. Um, the fact that people are talking about coal-fired power stations, talking about building new coal-fired power stations, beggars belief. All the independent assessments from the CSIRO, from the Australian Energy Market Operator, from any other private um, energy group will just tell you um, that it's just ridiculous to even think about new coal-fired power stations, not just in terms of the pollution and um, all the other health impacts, but just in terms of cost. Um, you know, I think from the bushfires, people are really increasingly concerned about climate change, wondering what we can do to try and mitigate the impacts. Um, and we just, seem, we just seem to sort of ignore the solutions in front of us. Wind and solar costs have come down so much in the last decade, solar by 90%, wind by 70%. Battery storage is following the same trajectory. The solutions are right here. You've got the Australian Energy Market Operator, which has actually put out a 20-year blueprint which talks of a transition to 75% renewables or 90% renewables if we really pull our finger out by 2040. We could probably do it even quicker, and that would actually deliver a cheaper, uh, cleaner, and probably more reliable energy system than we have now. You know, why that is not being seized by any party other than the Greens, just... Um, I, I, I just don't get it, quite frankly. And as you say, Giles, I mean, there are environmental reasons and economic reasons for why it's a bad idea to continue on the track we're on and underwrite a new coal-fired power station. But there's also kind of ideological reasons that um, that mean this doesn't really make sense. I mean, the Liberal Party's meant to be, um, you know, their modus operandi is, is let the market do its thing. When the market's saying this is kind of a bad idea, how do we understand their current um, considerations around uh, helping to fund Coal. Well, I think when it comes to the environment and things like basically the Liberal Party just sort of flick all their fundamental beliefs on their head. So, you know, we've understood the science has told us quite clearly that climate change is an issue. The economists and everybody else has told us quite clearly that the carbon price is the most efficient and effective way of doing that. That's a market-based solution. You just simply price the impact of carbons having on the community and the economy and, and you go ahead and do that. But they thought that, at, um, you know, well, apart from John Howard coming out with some sort of scheme in 2007, um, and Malcolm T Turnbull tried to do that once or twice and losing his job because of it, um, they've basically refused all those ideas. And, look, I don't quite understand it. Um, ideology, to me, doesn't explain it. Um, vested interest doesn't quite explain it. Um, a lack of respect of science doesn't quite explain it. It just seems to me to be completely bizarre. We just seem to, as soon as we start talking about the environment and, and the climate, we just seem to into this parallel universe where everything's upside down and back to front and um, white is black and black is white. It's just, it's just extraordinary. But um, here we are and we, don't, we still don't seem to be making any progress. Well, we did hear last week that, you know, big polluter or other polluters as well, but BP said that it made a statement about transitioning to net zero emissions and we saw the Business Council in Australia put its support behind federal independent MP Zali Stegall's climate bill. Um, are more businesses starting to move and be a bit clearer, do you think? Look, a lot of the businesses are starting to move very quickly. A lot of the businesses are moving to um, do their own, um, source their own energy requirements from 100% renewables. They see, they see the need not just in the cost savings for their own business, but also uh, the way they conduct business with um, international 
countries and the way they do trade. And there's an expectation along the supply chain that they're supposed to be clean and doing things on climate. Um, the Business Council of Australia, look, that's an interesting one. They were the loudest supporter of um, just four years ago of you know the efforts by the Liberal Party, the coalition to kill the carbon price, and what was then an 80 percent. We actually had a long-term 2050 target. It was for an 80% reduction in emissions by 2050. And the Business Council of Australia was allowed, along with the Minerals Council, just screamed for that to be repealed. They wanted it gone, um, as did every damn business group, actually. It's um, really frustrating. And now they're sort of saying, oh, well, OK, let's have a long-term zero-carbon target for 2050. But what they want... And, that, and look, and that's fine. That's great. But we know from the science that we've actually got to move quickly. It's the next 10 years that counts. We need some of these short-term targets, and they've got to be ambitious. But the Business Council won't talk about those. The last time there was a short-term target proposed by Labor just um, eight months ago, nine months ago in the election, the Business Council said it would ruin the economy, it would wreck the economy. Um, They said the same thing about the 50% renewable target, which we now know is going to happen anyway, just from business as usual, because it makes economic sense. So until they get on board, those business lobby groups get on board and don't just sort of kick the ball down the road by saying, OK, well, let's do something by 2050. No, let's do something by 2025. Let's do something now. Let's do something. Let's have a decent target by 2030. That's what we need to hear from them. And the the really um, horrific bushfires over this summer have made sort of the impact of climate change really plain to see for people, you know, who live in the major cities have really experienced respiratory problems and um, come face to face with the reality of of a warming climate. But some have noted kind of a change in language from the coalition. There's talk of adaptation uh, rather than kind of, you know, moving towards um, more ambitious renewable energy targets and that sort of thing. Do you read anything into that change of language and how it might might, uh, I guess, further hamper efforts to reduce our emissions? Yeah, well, it's just, a, it's just an ongoing refusal to actually do what people have wanted them to do and what is the obvious thing to try and do is to reduce emissions to try and mitigate as much as possible. Adaptation um, and resilience, I mean, they sound fine and it all sounds very worthy, but it's going to be really expensive and really complicated. We had an interesting interview on, on, the, um, on our podcast. Um, we do a weekly podcast um, called Energy Insiders, and we had the head of the ANU Climate Change group and he just sort of said look this is just crazy um this idea of adaptation and things like that people kind of assume after this summer that there is a new normal quote unquote like a new normal and we can kind of adapt to that but the climate will continue to change it will continue to change quickly there will be no new normal once you think you've adapted to what you think is the new normal and a hotter temperature then it's just going to get hotter and hotter because the emissions will increase Warming will continue, you'll get your feedback loops, and it just goes, that as an idea is just completely nuts, and it's just basically avoiding the question, which is basically what Australian politicians have managed to do very successfully for the last 10, 15 years. Another federal focus has been on sort of technology, and we're going to see more from them on that. I mean, we have seen technology do a lot of good jobs um, for transitioning the economy away from from polluting sources of electricity, for instance, and we know, we know we need to look at, at vehicles and all sorts of other things as well. But is innovation in this space likely to do enough, you think? 
Look, it's fantastic. Look, it's, it's, it's great to want innovation. It's great to focus on technology because technology will deliver the solutions. What they're not recognising is that we've actually got the technology at hand to achieve an awful lot with basically renewable energy um, technologies and the battery storage technologies, which they refuse to support and they mock and they say, you know, can't support a modern economy despite what all the experts tell us and despite what we're seeing in states like South Australia. So, look, great. Fund more R&D, fund more innovation, Look at new technologies because all technologies might be might be great to sort of improve the system, but just learn to embrace what we've actually got there and just have a plan and start rolling out that plan and make sure that we've got the infrastructure and the rules in place. What we're seeing now in, in regional Victoria is we're seeing this, and, and elsewhere in the country too, we're just seeing these massive bottlenecks in the deployment of wind and solar. A lot of the development there's actually come to a screeching halt because despite the fact that, you know, what was needed for the grid was identified 10 years ago, basically nothing's happened. We've had no overarching policy. We've had no one sort of sitting there making sure that the grid upgrades that we need to do uh, have been done. They're not terribly expensive, but, you know, they require some sort of investment. We haven't moved to make sure that the rules, which were designed around the old-fashioned coal generators and an old-fashioned centralised scheme, haven't been updated to a modern decentralised scheme where lots of people producing their own electricity, you know, with their solar and their batteries and electric vehicles and everything's going to renewable. So, you know, we can do this sort of thing, but it just kind of needs to... You've got to modify the rules of the game to allow this transition to happen. And we just haven't done that nearly quickly enough. And now we're getting all these bottlenecks and it's really frustrating to the industry. We're starting to see investment tail off dramatically. We're starting to see major investors looking overseas and just basically giving up on Australia because they just think it's it's a land of so much possibilities. It should be the centre of all this transition, but it's just too hard. Giles Parkinson's with us, and I have been re- reading in Renewal Economy those sort of ups and downs for the renewable energy industry and, and those associated with, with transitioning um, to new, um, well, I suppose to the new economy. Uh, how is that, that sector sort of faring, Giles? Oh, look, it's just really, um, it, it's, it's been really frustrating for the industry um, that, um, that they've been holding these, these bottlenecks and, and these things, and it's very confusing. A lot of people blame it on a bit of a knee-jerk reaction to what happened in South Australia three years ago, or almost four years ago now, with the system black, and they kind of had a knee-jerk reaction to some of the rules and, and put these new things in, and, and they've actually been shown to be really counterproductive. They're actually making the grid even less reliable because it's just like, um, you know, it's just a really just a dumb way of going about things and they haven't thought about it holistically. Yet South Australia, quite extraordinarily, is showing, is leading the world. It's now over the last 12 months, it's sourced about 55% of its demand from wind and solar, which is world leading, particularly considering that it's been hung off the end of the grid, you know, a very long skinny grid and it just sits there at the end there. So that's really quite world leading, the fact that they've been able to manage that. And, and remarkably, over the last two weeks, South Australia has been actually operating as an energy island because the storm blew down the main interconnector from Victoria to South Australia. That means that South Australia has basically had to look after its own resources. It's interesting that you don't hear that much about that <laughs> when, they're, when they're doing okay on their own when, um, versus when Adelaide yeah, had that massive blackout. Absolutely. And we wrote this article last week. I mean, the actual storm that tore down these power lines, it was quite extraordinary. It was basically the same sort of thing that happened four years ago. But this time, wind and solar, I mean, wind, solar and batteries basically saved the day because they responded, they, they thought about the software settings, they knew what, the, um, what needs to happen. 
and it happened. And they basically kept the lights on. There was a catastrophic um, impact on the system with a major... Um, these transmission lines were much bigger than the ones that fell down in South Australia three or four years ago. These are 500 kilowatt, kilovolt sort of lines that go from the Trove Valley through to Portland, Smelter, and on to South Australia. Quite a dramatic event, but it held firm. It was fantastic, and South Australia's been operating still at more than 50% renewables for the last two weeks, operating as an island. And that really is quite special in the way that engineers think about, okay, how are we going to look after the grid? How do we manage a grid which is dominated by wind and solar? And this is a fantastic, um, you know, just sort of, um, you know, support of what they're trying to do. And, um, you know, yeah, it's actually really exciting and really interesting. I think that kind of underscores the really strange parallel universe we seem to exist in in Australia, where we have states and territories signed up to net zero emissions and really positive examples of change, um, such as that example you just provided, and lots of local councils around the country really doing interesting and innovative things as well. But it's been such a mess at the federal level for so long. And given there's still, you know, existing frictions in the coalition we're hearing about and, and apparently a group of kind of rogue Labor MPs who seem to be pushing for a more pro-coal stance. Then we've had Zali Stegall, independent MP Zali Stegall's climate bill and, and the Greens under Adam Bant's leadership calling for a Green New Deal and all that sort of thing. So there's kind of a lot of conversations happening within federal politics while a lot of positive things are happening below that. Do you see that anything could be a circuit breaker at the federal level to finally... Uh, I guess, um, end these climate wars that have dogged us for so long? I think it has to come from the voters. It has to come from the electors. People have got to make their feelings um, felt. And um, you just hope that the majority of the population actually see the opportunities, want that transition, and are pushing for it. Um, I think the, um, the scary thing for me about the Liberals, and even the moderates are talking about it, sure, some of them are going and saying, let's have Zali's bill. Uh, we understand that we can deal with that, but none of them seem to accept um, the re- that renewables are the solution. They either want coal on the right wing, or they want nuclear on the moderate. Mm. Um, you know, nuclear zero emissions, but it's horrendously expensive, and it would be incredibly slow to introduce in Australia. So that just seems to be dodging the bullet. But one of the really interesting things is there's a remarkable coincidence about all the different states, territories, and councils that have had these really progressive and really far-reaching targets. Um, South Australia, it has a Liberal government now which has a, its own target of 100% renewables by 2030. That's extraordinary. It's a Liberal government, right-wing government, uh, or Conservative government. Um, Tasmania, another Liberal government, 100% renewables. Well, they're almost there anyway because of the hydro, but they want to become the battery of the nation. They want to go much further, have more wind energy. ACT, 100% renewables reached there already. Lots of different councils have got the same sort of thing and been very, very progressive and very, very ambitious. What's the common thread with all of those areas? They don't have a coal industry. They don't have a coal lobby. Muddy up the waters, funding political parties and just basically getting in the way. And it's just, you know, it's more than just a coincidence that anywhere where you see progressive energy politics in Australia and good ambition is where you'll find that the coal industry is no longer there. I guess with the exception, the notable exception of the Newcastle City Council and good, for the, good on them to um, have their own sort of zero carbon target by 2025. Although I'm not too sure how they quite resolve that with all the coal that's exported to their port, but at least that's what the local council means. But, um, yeah, that's... Um, Basically, it seems to be the formula. Get rid of the coal industry and uh, you've got a clear package to where you need to go. Well, well, who knows? In Victoria, there's a coal industry here. We have that Climate Change Act and we're, I suppose we're waiting for the state government to set those kind of step targets toward, towards net zero. So let's see if there's um, more to talk with you about next time, Giles. 
No, well, thanks for having me on. No worries, Giles Parkinson. Um, you can catch his reporting at Renew Economy. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Triple R's The Grapevine, a weekly current affairs radio show putting local issues in a global context. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Monday. Hope you enjoyed the show, and if you have any feedback or would like to connect, hit us up via the Triple R website.